Greetings, my name's Andrew Sumner. My grandfather, Pop Smythe, bought me my first comic book in Liverpool, England, when I was three years old, and I spent the next 50 years hurtling around the pop culture kaleidoscope, first as a fan, and then as a journalist, editor, publisher, and presenter. Along the way, I met a bunch of interesting people who will be joining me here, creators, performers, professionals, and public servants. We live in divisive, fractured times, but art and popular culture connect people from all viewpoints and from all walks of life. I'm often struck by the passions people enjoy, that they can set aside their differences for and agree on, whatever those passions are, whether I share them or not. And that spark, that moment of instinctive, connective agreement, that's what I call a hard agree. I saw a great uh, commercial yesterday for extra chewing gum. And <laughs> I don't know if you've seen it, but it was it was absolutely hilarious. It was yeah. basically like all of these people with horrible hair and terrible self-grooming kind of waking up from under piles of debris in their apartments and being like, wait, we can go outside again and <laughs> reaching for packs of extra <laughs> gum to, to go and like freshen their breasts so that they could actually interact with other human beings <laughs> for the first time. And it was this weird mix of these sort of like zombie-esque people who were like, beyond jubilant, just like leaping through the streets and like <laughs> down park benches and like just couldn't believe they were free. Yeah. And it, was, it was really funny. It was really good. <laughs> That's awesome. I, I, I love the positivity of, of, of that approach. And, yeah. you know, it's such a wonderful thing, you know, to find humour in the in the in the yeah. heavy isn't it you know it's yeah. it's to get it right as well is is an art unto itself. Yeah I, I think so. And uh, on on not necessarily that note, but at that moment, uh, welcome to Hard Degree and welcome to Evangeline Lilly's Library of the Soul. This is week three, and uh, we have a real treat this week, actually, which is uh, we will be talking about um, The Red Tent by Anita Diamant. Am I pronouncing her name correctly? I have no idea. I say Damon, but that's Oh, Damon, yeah. But I was, I don't know, she's not French and, she, she, you know, I think she's of Jewish heritage. And she I, is, yeah, she is for so sure. It's probably wrong also. I, I grew up in French immersion, so whenever I see new words, I, I, my brain still has that sort of elementary school training to pronounce them in the French way. So I don't, I actually don't know. I say Demont, but maybe yeah. it's Diamond. Well, that, that's that's part. Know. That's part of the fun. I'm going to dedicate myself over the next week finding to out, finding right? out because you, because I've I've slipped into this. You've placed me in this non-research zone. I haven't gone and looked at any footage of her or, or seen her talk about the book or anything. By the way, I am of course here with the one, the only Evangeline Brains Lily, who today Brains is actually rocking her brains glasses and a very fetching sky blue scarf, which which matches it very nicely. <laughs> have you have you got things going on with your her brains? Is that is that what's going on? Are you beginning kind of, to yeah. transform I'm in the it? Of a, of a mini grow out, not like a yeah. full grow, but like a mini grow out. And I'm sort of like at that awkward stage where if I don't put a, a kerchief over my head yeah. when when it's wet, it just gets too big. Yeah. <laughs> and I kind of look like a Q-tip. I don't know if you guys have <laughs> yeah, Absolutely, yeah. But yeah. Are you sort of getting it into a uh, Hope Van Dyne shape? Is that is that the is that the deal? Oh, I don't know. Yeah. 
So that is that something you can't talk about? <laughs> I can't talk about anything. Can't even get into that stuff. Yeah. No way. So, so you can't even talk about what your hairstyle is going to be in the movie. Oh no. Mm-mm. No. That- you know, actually, on the first film, um, yeah. you know, I was familiar with lockdown secrecy from Lost. You know, we, yeah. that was that was the beginning of the sort of new age of Hollywood being a lockdown secrecy all the time because the internet was hungry for scripts and hungry for information and and Twitter had just become a thing. And um, I'm, it's crazy to think that like when I started my adult career, Twitter didn't even exist anyway. Um, but so I'm, I was familiar with lockdown secrecy, but I had always been very reticent about it. I'd always been very irritated by the whole thing. Cause I just felt like this isn't, heart surgery these aren't like geopolitical secrets that are going to keep the world safe like it's a fucking tv show excuse my (laughs) french but really like do we really have to be so militant about the secrecy and so when we started on ant-man um i knew that it was secret but i was i was just like it's it's cool though they're gonna like people are gonna see me on social media and maybe like paparazzi pictures and things with the haircut i'm gonna have for the movie before the movie comes out so it's fine. So when we did the the haircut, I I released a picture on Instagram of like check me check out my new Hope Van Dyne haircut and oh my god, I got in so much trouble. <laughs> I, I got in so much trouble and I was like, okay, I'm like I was such a scolded like wounded little puppy after that. Like I'm sorry. <laughs> So yeah, no, no discussion. No, about I'm asking, I'm asking the worst kind of sixty-four thousand dollar question. Yes, exactly. Uh, so b- before we depart the world of uh, of of haircuts, um, in the in the first Ant Man, that that rather brutal Bob that you had is yeah. was that you or was that was that was was that a wig? Everyone thinks it's a wig. It's my yeah. hair. Wow, amazing! That's I always I always thought it was a wig. That's what I'm asking. Yeah. Well, I, it's because I have extremely thick hair. Like I have a yeah. lot of hair. And actually in this, <laughs> they got so much attention that people really thought I was wearing a wig. That in the second film, I had my hairdresser thin my hair to make it look like what other people think is real hair. Yeah. Because my hair is really, <laughs> really thick. And so it's sort of not as noticeable when I have long hair yeah. because you're sort of used to the idea of long hair being tons of hair. Yeah. But when it was short like that in that bob, everyone thought guarantee it was a wig. I I have I have dispelled this myth about a hundred times, and I still can't get ahead of it. Like everyone yeah. is convinced it was a wig. So yeah, no, that was my hair. Well, I think because everybody just looks at the image or you know looks at the footage of the movie and it's like, oh yeah, okay, of course, has to be, has yeah, to be, yeah. of course it is. Yeah, that's all. I mean, until you until you look me in the eyes and tell me that, I yeah. honestly thought that was the case. Amazing, yeah. amazing. Now. Um, to, to flip onto the, the subject of today's Library of the Soul, um, I'm really fascinated by what the red tent is uh, and because it made me do a bunch of things that I'd never done before, one of which was read the Old Testament. Yeah, because oh. I've, I've, the closest I've ever got to, uh, to the Old Testament is that the rock group, the 70s uh, progressive rock band, Genesis's first album. It's called From Genesis to Revelation. That's how they get the name. That's as much as I know about the Old Testament. And of course, once I was reading The Red Tent, I was like, man, I'm going to have to read this famous chapter 34 of Genesis to see what goes on. And um, and we'll get into the fabric of that. My, my question for you, which we kind of always start with is, where were you and what was happening in your life? 
when you encountered this book? So if we, if, if anybody's been wa- uh, listening for two, the previous two or three episodes, um, we sort of walked me from being a broke, uh, kind of lost university student to launching to fame on Lost and and then actually becoming, ironically, even more lost in my spiritual walk than I'd ever been and um, having a bit of an existential crisis. And and this, this book came to me in 2010. And by that time, I was, um, I had wrapped on Lost. We had finished the entire show. And in the last season, I had fallen in love with the man that I'm still with today. And I had decided to have his baby. And he was a he was an AD, which is an assistant director, um, which is kind of a it's a fancy way of saying the guys that essentially run the set. Um, so just keep all of the crew doing what they're supposed to be doing and keep all the wheels greased and make sure everyone's where they're supposed to be. And so that the machine just keeps moving. Um, it's a really intense job and it is really long hours. It's like 18 hours a day, five to six days, sometimes seven days a week. And um, that's what my partner did. And so I was pregnant and he was off working all the time. And then his one day off um, had always been devoted to fishing. He's an avid fisherman. And I was like, you know, I don't want to take that away from you. So he was basically non-existent. Like I just wasn't around at all. And I was, uh, I was still in Hawaii. And so I didn't have any of my family around either. And I've always been very reclusive. So I've never had very much of a social life or very many friends. So I spent the good part of that pregnancy doing yoga and like going for long walks and reading. And this book was one of the books that I read while I was pregnant with my first son. Um, And actually in a crazy, ironic, strange, beautiful, miraculous, of course, twist of fate, um, Jupiter entered Pisces when I picked this book back up at after our last session a week ago. Um, so on May 13th. And, and if you talk to astrologists, they would say that in order to understand how Jupiter in Pisces will manifest for you on a personal level, look back to the themes that were prevalent in your life back in 2010. Wow. And which I thought was amazing. <laughs> not only was I reading this book for the, fir- for the first time, this is now my third time reading it, but I, I picked it up again. But I also throughout this past week was in a terrifying pregnancy scare. I, for the last week, I thought I was pregnant. Oh, and I really? Was, wow. Yeah, I was so freaked out because I do not want to be pregnant right now. I'm on yeah. my way to go do another Marvel movie. I have two strapping boys who are like, if this, if I was pregnant right now, my youngest would be six years older than my, my baby. And like, yeah. I just was that is not where I'm at in life. I really don't want this to happen, but it was really like on my mind and on my heart. So when I read that about Jupiter entering Pisces right now, I was like, holy shit, this is amazing. Especially because what it does is it's sort of like linked themes that became new for me when I read the red tent um, themes of, first of all, the impact of the moon on a woman's life and soul, which was completely brand new to me. And uh, I don't even know if at that point I put two and two together that women actually um, menstruate with moon cycles. Like, I don't think I even realized that. And then also just this notion of 
um, of the goddess, of the female spiritual energy, of the distinctly female um, deities or energies that exist in the world that have been so dramatically suppressed through the patriarchy. Um, that was that was all introduced to me really. Um, I mean, I guess it had already come in in dribbles because I had had a roommate who was super into astrology. She was like a Brazilian. I called her my little witch and I just in the most loving way. I mean, she yeah. was a total witch, like just manifesting shit all over the place and, you know, really, really sexually free. And she was just an amazing woman and is still my friend to this day. So she had sort of first introduced me to astrology but more in that space of like um, personality uh, assessing kind of stuff. And, and I'd been interested. I thought it was interesting, but I never really put a ton of stock into it. And this book was the first time I think I started to realize that there was an energy that was in me that I had never been offered the opportunity to experience or to, to um, commune with or be one with because my God up to then had always been God, the father, God, the son, yeah. God, the lion, God, the sovereign, God, the male, the male, the patriarch, the male. And, um, and I'd never, I'd never connected to the loss of where is God, the mother, where is my female energy that is, is eternal and beautiful and worthy of, of worship or worthy of at least acknowledgement. Yeah, that's, um, so I, I, I get that. And that must have been, uh, it, that must have been quite a powerful piece of narrative to read then, given the fact that you're at that place, at that juncture with that perspective. Yeah, with my first baby in my womb. Yeah. Which is already an enormous shift for a woman, for any woman. And I think already what it does without, whether you can put words to it or not, is I think that when you become pregnant, you immediately connect to that energy that is described so beautifully and so graphically and so poetically in this book. Um, and so the synchronicity of having that experience internally and then being given these words and also this history because it's a it's historical fiction, so yeah. um, Anita has has based all of this in intensive research about what a woman's life would have been like in Israel at that time, at that place, um, in Canaan for a, a shepherd's wife. Like she she did her research, so a, a lot of this is based not just on. Um, actually, in a way, I actually think it's sort of um, a counterbalance to the Old Testament and biblical truth, but. Like I was interested to see, cause I kept, you know, I was reading it again and this happens every time I read it where I kind of get like a little, a little glee or a little smirk or a little pleasure when she kind of dismantles something I've been told I've read in the Bible a hundred yeah. times, or I've been taught in Sunday school a million times. And it's been told to me in a certain way with a certain kind of tone and narrative and suggestion like underneath it. And then in some of these scenes where she, Sorry, I'm just going to tell my kids to be more quiet. <laughs> no, it's good. It's cool. That's the affirmative power of the mother right there. there you Stop. Go. Boom. Done. <laughs> And it was the first time in all of our podcasts that my children have, have in any way impacted the podcast, which I think is kind of cool. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I was thinking exactly that. You know, isn't it funny that, that you should be literally talking about motherhood when that comes up? Yeah, exactly. 
I love, I love those things. Those are for me, that is God. Like that's the magic. And that's why I love being alive. Cause I just there, I see magic everywhere. I just see synchronicity and coincidence and like just crazy alignment of things all the time where I go, this is like, somebody's fucking with me in the best way. You know, there's like a mischievous energy to what is happening all the time. And I love that, that kind of wink and nudge of like, we're here. Yeah. You know, there's more at work than meets the eye. And I'm like, Ooh, that feels really good. Like that makes me feel quite in in a weird way, quite loved. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I agree with that. That is also, while I might've ascribed um, different reasons for it or different energies to it being the case, that's also my experience of life. And uh, I think it's worth digressing just to talk about that for a sec, because I too have had so many of those experiences um, where I remember walking down a tube station in the East End of London once, and I was thinking about a guy that I'd been to. I originally went to law school before I, I did my my English and journalism stuff, and uh, I got kicked out of law school for drinking too much and not doing any work. Hey, hey kicked out. <laughs> That's right. That's the only value of law school in my mind is to be kicked out of it, to be honest, because, uh, I mean, the, the law wasn't for me. I found it to be very, very dull. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and uh, but I was thinking of this guy who's a really cool bloke um, who became a travel photographer. Uh, who uh, he also he finished his law degree, but he never used it. Became a travel photographer. He's from Hong Kong, and I, I was thinking about him. It had probably been eleven years since I'd seen him or spoken to him at all. We were very close at one point, and I'm walking down this tube station in in East London, just thinking about him. It's called Oldwich, and. Uh, as I get to a certain point, somebody just shouts out Sumner and I'll look up and it's him, Amar, wow. standing right there. I mean, I was literally thinking about him for the first time in, dec- in a decade and it was like, what? It was like one of those absolute what the fuck moments. But but that has happened to me countless times. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it's, so, it's so unusual. I mean, I mean, I, I've had funny things happen where I've, I've met people and they're adamant that they know who I am and I just do not know who they are. And then as they explain the story of why they think they know me, it's always based on some kind of connection. Not, I know a friend of yours and I've seen your photo. It's like, well, deconstruct why you think it is, you know, and then some of it comes just completely out of nowhere. And I think that's a truly beautiful thing about life. And it is absolutely a very real energy. And how many times do you sit there and think, oh man, you know, I really think it would be cool if X, Y, Z happened. And then some echo or shadow or foretelling or roadmap to that happening just drops into your lap. Absolutely. I, I, I see that energy. And when, when those things happen, I used to find myself um, just in awe and sort of humbled, you know, of like this, this energy, this presence, this something that is at work. And now what is, what is incredible is there's been a a shift um, with age and time and experience and maturity where I've started to feel both the awe and the humility and the um, just sort of mystery of it. But then I've also felt this really intimate feeling uh, or recognition of like, that is what it means to be loved is that somewhere there's something at work that is paying, that cares enough to pay attention to my life. It cares enough to somehow be connected to my life or at work in my life so that when I think a thought, 
an answer comes back. Something comes back. When I think about a friend I haven't seen in 10 years, that friend appears. Or, you know, when when I when I dream a dream and um and wake up and realize it's given me an answer I've been asking for for three weeks, you know, or or things yeah. like that. And and you know, there's a way, there's a way that it can be extremely abstract in in the way that I hard agree how you explained your perspective of God last episode, where yeah. you talked about this sort of undefinable interconnectedness of things that that we can't even grasp with our puny little brains. But then there's also the, the intimate version of it where if you if you choose it, and I and I do, I do choose to to feel like, wow, like. I received that and, and wherever that came from, it was pure and whatever that pure energy is that it came from, just gave it to me, to me. And that feels like, okay, I'm not alone. I'm not purposeless. It's not empty. This void isn't just chaos. There's meaning and love and wonder and wisdom to be had. And like, all I have to do is just walk truthfully and with openness, you know, and just be like, show me, take me wherever, whatever. And then just, it just starts happening. Like magic yeah. just starts to kind of manifest in my life. Yeah. I, 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 I really couldn't hard agree more on that point because it's about specificity, right? It, it, the world can't be chaos as much as it's, as much as I'm attracted to concepts of chaos, particularly mm -hmm. when it comes to narrative and storytelling. And you look at the dismaying things in the world, genuinely dismaying things in the world. And there is clearly a ton of chaos that abounds. But that's not all that life is. There, is. there, there is too much that's very specific going on, and it's it's exactly as you say that there's too much that's redolent of some kind of pattern for each human being. Because everybody has these moments that it's not chance. What what what's happening in those moments isn't chance. Something very specific to you is being accessed, and and. I hear these stories time and time again from all different kinds of people in all different walks of life at all different points in their lives. But it's almost nobody has a story where something like that has never happened to them. Even uh -huh. if somebody who's incredibly pragmatic, like uh -huh. my own dad, when he sits down and recounts stories about his life, ultimately these moments of incredible symmetry come up. He doesn't recognise them as that because it's not the primary way he thinks. And I'll go, Dad, just take that back for a second. Don't you think it's fascinating that X, Y, or Z, right? And and he'll be like, oh, I've never thought about it that way. And it's just really fascinating. And to, to, to kind of continue this riff for a second, something that's interesting about my dad is he fight, he's, a fight, he's a retired financial guy. He was a bank manager. And some of the accounts that he had in Liverpool he was the uh, he was the bank manager of a bunch of well-known people uh, who were connected in the music industry. So um, there's a very famous guy from the uh, the Mersey Beat era, one of the big Liverpool bands of the '60s that wasn't the Beatles. Is um, Jerry Marsden and the Pacemakers? They had a big hit called "Ferry Across the Mersey." And they had a big hit with "You'll Never Walk Alone" from the musical Carousel, and that's the the recording of that has become the theme tune for a bunch of really big international um, sports teams. Liverpool Football Club, soccer club being one of them. One of the big teams in America uses it as well. But but anyway, this guy is kind of a legendary music figure in the UK, and um, my dad was his bank manager, right? But my dad's only ever mentioned that in passing 
when he is is talking about his life because to him somebody who's wasn't really into that whole music scene all of his stories that involve those people you know that dad will sit and listen to a whole person's anecdote they're going oh my god i got to meet jerry marsden once blah 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 and dad'll be yeah yeah that's um that's uh that that's amazing. You know, here, you know, he's, he's a very nice guy, blah, blah, blah. It's so good. He had that experience. And I'll, as we're walking, I'll be going, oh, my dad was Jerry Marsden's bank manager. You know, and you <laughs> won't even say it. You know, in those normal moments where you're like, oh, it's so important to me. You know, that, I, I, and I remember telling friends of mine I'd known my whole life growing up with them. I, literally, I, I, I told an old schoolmate of mine about two weeks ago, oh, yeah, you know, my dad was Jerry Marsden's bank manager. Right. He's the, the bank managers for the Epstein family, the manager of the Beatles, you know, and he was like, what? what? I live next door to you for 70 years. I've never heard that story. And, and, and it's about, and dad doesn't even access what a conversation opener, what a door opener that story actually is, that, that tale of his life actually is, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and the reason I was thinking about this with reference to just the, that weird, the, the, the symmetry, the symmetry, the, spe- yeah. the specificity of things is that Jerry's a person who like turned up in my dad's life at, at strange moments. Um, there's, a, there's a well-known children's cartoon in the UK called Mr. Ben. It's for preschool kids. And the premise is Mr. Ben, who looks like a classic English gentleman, bowler hat, three-piece suit, umbrella, walks into the local costume shop. And the guy who owns the costume shop is a guy with a fez on. Yeah, goes, um, oh, Mr. Ben, you're back. Would you like to come through here? I've got a, I've got a costume for you to try on. And Mr. Ben puts on whatever the costume is. It's a knight. It's a it's a, an astronaut. You know, it's a magician, right? And he goes out. Oh, he puts the costume on. He goes out through the other door of the changing room, and he has an adventure on on Mars with a bunch of astronauts. Or he, he goes back to the Arthurian era, right? And uh, and then right at the end, right at the end, and this is my point, I guess, is that. Uh, is that as the adventure concludes, suddenly the little man with the fez appears and goes, oh, Mr. Ben, this way. And, and he takes him through a, a portal, which, which takes him back into the changing room. And Mr. Ben changes back out of his outfit into his three-piece suit, says goodbye to the man in the changing room, and that's it. He doesn't go, holy fuck, I can't believe I've just had this yeah, adventure yeah. Mars. Yeah, yeah. Very English. <laughs> and it's all so genteel and polite, you know, and, and these amazing things are happening and people are just thinking not to mention them. That is a very English thing. But also, no. also th- this is why I think sometimes people are, are faced with this kind of Im- amazing magic in their lives. And because of the nature of some societies and the way that works, the more kind of measured Western cultures a lot of people don't even mention the amazing things that happen to them. You know, yeah. the, the, you know, it's only when you really dig into them. I know, I, and I reference my dad because he's this kind of guy. He's a, he's a wonderful person. But you have to dig in with my father and ask him those questions. And then he'll tell you, but he won't ever think to to share it with you. He won't even think it's story worthy, you know, if that makes sense. Even the, even the flip side of life, the dark side of life, the shadow side of life, yeah. um, one of the things that happens in the red tent is um, whenever there is a death of anybody, um, the women start in on a, a wailing, a communal wailing, and they do it um, openly and they do it loudly and they do it together. And 
I was really struck by that. I've seen, I think, versions or examples of that through movies um, from Middle Eastern yeah. culture. Yeah. Of this harrowing sound that um, sometimes it's just the women, sometimes it's the women and the men. Yeah. Um, and and I recently had um, a friend whose husband committed suicide unexpectedly, and I was so bereft and yet I felt like in our culture there is no appropriate way to express that there is no place to put that and there's also what I wanted to do is I had this for the first time in my life and maybe it's because I'm older I'm a woman and a mother and so is she and a wife I had this intense desire to drive to her home and drive with like have a bunch of women like everyone every woman who knows her and loves her gather and all of us just wail together i just felt like she needs to feel how my heart is breaking with her and that if our hearts can break together and they can break loudly and openly then the portal to grief to good grief to healthy needed grief is opened but Instead, what this will turn into in our culture is she's going to have all of these logistics to deal with, you know, dealing with the the estate, the will, the um, dealing with the, the funeral arrangements, dealing with, you know, how do we communicate this to our like there is no organic process in our culture. And, and there was, there used to be, and in some cultures there still is, but in that very stiff English upper lip way that has been spread through the English empire yeah. during that time period, um, that has been taken from our culture. And, and I do think, again, that's sort of, um, that's a yin energy thing. Um, I think that the English empire was, was so successful and so powerful because it was so devoted to one side, to the yang. It was yeah. so devoted to ration, reason, aggression, and logic. And when you really commit to any one thing, as we've discussed before, in my, in my belief, that faith will move mountains, whatever that faith is in. You know, if you have extreme faith in something very singular, that's extremely powerful. Um, but I think it's not healthy. And I think historically, cultures have, for the most part, um, when they haven't been grand empires, you know, more when they've been more organic, smaller, tribal um, um, pods of people, there has been, and you see it in this book, this balance between the yin and the yang, and there's room for both. And, and the culture, both the men and the women have to learn sort of how to, how to move within both of those energies yeah. and and kind of pass through the one that might be more foreign to them without bulking or, or rejecting, but just allowing, right. Just allowing yeah. that other energy to exist symbiotically. And um, we really, we really have lost that so profoundly. And, and it's funny because you, you said last episode when we were talking about um, at the end, we kind of went off. I went off on a bit of a tangent about my own fears and the fears yeah. that I have today about this sort of collecting of power that's happening globally and this sort of collecting of information and um, authority and how that really disconcerted me. And, and you said, you know, I don't think there's like a mastermind at work behind it all. And, um, 
And I remember thinking I, I wanted to follow up with you and, and, and explain that I don't think there's a mastermind at work behind it all. I actually think what's happening is in the West, there's this awakening of yin energy. And the yin, where the yang is so hell-bent on freedom. I mean, if there's one thing that is at like the core of the English empire spread is that English people needed to be free. And there had to be democracy, which is a form of freedom. And there had to be autonomy, which was a form of freedom. And there had to be all of these sort of pillars of freedom. Yin energy tends to be more controlling because it's a protective nurturing energy. And to protect and nurture, there is an, a measure of control involved. And so, you know, as a woman who has got a ton of yin energy, I can still see the, the sort of inherent wrong and danger in the yang of like the overt aggression and the over-the-top ration where we forget our feelings and we forget that those things matter. But there's always danger on the other side as well. And I, I think what I see right now is just this growing yin energy that is saying, no more of this free balling aggression. We are going to make such strict rules and structure and, and create such control that everyone will be safe. <laughs> it's like, it's like the mom that gets a little out of hand with yeah. her helicopter parenting and yeah. kind of ruins the kids, you know, like it's, it's that energy that I feel growing that gives me pause and makes me sort of hold my breath and go, well, hang on a minute. Let's not swing the pendulum all the way over to the yin. Cause we really, what we need is just this balance, this symbi symbiosis of them both. Which of course is a fundamental part of, of, of the visual expression of um, yin and yang. It, it think that the concept is not designed to be all one on one side and all one on the other. They have to coexist to a degree yeah. in order for harmony to work, right? And even you, I love, I love that it's not just those kind of interlocking teardrops or raindrops. Yeah. Or, you know, I look, I see them as water, but there's also that spot the right spot. in the middle, right? Yeah. The spot is so crucial because it's like right at the core of the yeah. yin there's a piece of yang and, and vice versa. Um, and, and it's books, crucial to the concept, isn't it? I, I think, I think that's, that, that's what it's all about. Yeah. And I, and I think that's one of the things I found so enchanting about the red tent is in, obviously, you know, Old Testament Israel is like very patriarchal, right? Yeah. I mean, the society is completely run by men. Women aren't even allowed to you know, move around without the escort of a man. And yet right at the center, right at the core of it all is this tent, you know, this yeah. private sacred space where for three days women retreat into their bleeding together yeah. communally and it is sacred and it's beautiful and it's an honoring of that um, time and space and that power that beautiful profound power that women have to bring life into the world and the danger of that power and the way women you know die in that tent giving birth and babies yeah. die in that tent giving you know coming to life and and the drama and the intensity in that. Um, and, and even though it is a patriarchal culture, what I saw in this book was that those institutions were not so deeply entrenched the way they are today. So that there are these moments where, I mean, the most horrific moment in the whole book for me is the end of part two, where, where Dina's 
um, Sachem is is slaughtered yeah. in her arms. Yeah. And and for me, why it was so horrific wasn't because Sachem died. I mean, we saw lots of death in this book, and and you know, death comes and goes, and it's part of the beauty of life. What was horrific for me was the awful injustice. You know, uh, for me, a woman dying in child childbirth at that time in that place, that's not unjust. That's life, you yeah. know, and, and there's a beauty and an honor to that. But this dishonorable, disgusting injustice of this murder and this death, that's this treason and this treachery was so like it's it's hard for me still. I've read the book three times to read those that chapter. It just my stomach starts to churn and I know it's coming and I'm like, I don't want to read it. I don't want to read it. I don't like it. But then the the palate cleanser that just helps me swallow the pill down and move through is immediately following that Dina just steps into her power as a, basically a sorceress. You know, she just steps into this rage and in that rage, she accesses this autonomy and this strength and this, this clarity. And she just calls these curses down onto her family. And it felt like in that moment, what we might expect out of our current concept of a patriarchy is that the patriarch would walk over, slap her silly, throw her in a tent and beat the shit out of her or like condemn her or like trap her, you know, refuse to let her be free anymore, that she would have all of her autonomy and freedom taken from her. But instead, what happens in this story is they cower in fear yeah. because and they feel and they know and they sense that there is a power in women that they don't possess. Yeah. And that that has been lost. I don't think we, even in our beautiful efforts towards feminism today, I don't even think women are fully conceiving of what, what used to be, what was, what traditionally was our female power. And for me, that's very wrapped up in spirituality. Yeah. That that's interesting that you should you should uh, talk through that because I think when you were talking about the the legacy of um, you know British society and British culture throughout the empire throughout the world, I think one of the things that um, that really emerges from the Victorian era is the in those in the more in the more primal societies there was a connectivity to the basic reality of childbirth yeah. and biology and in the victorian era all of that stuff and sex the sexuality is another part of this all got buried underground so mm. yeah so people don't feed, women aren't feeding their babies in public people aren't talking about how the body works in public it's all hushed up and it's all talked about in the most euphemistic terms people start talking about sex and sexuality in the most euphemistic terms mm. yeah and and I, I think that's a very interesting thing and I, I think to talk about that is also fascinating because that's in terms of in terms of where the book is going and and the uh, the concepts that it examines that's that is that's a very significant part of the book but but also when you just look at the look at the book in purely narrative terms and it's purely narrative devices it's doing exactly the same thing it's taking it's taking a piece of history that has been recorded solely by men in which the role of women have been downplayed to a spectacular degree. And, and what Anita's doing is taking this, this character who is literally just an afterthought, whose um, who's rape and attack and the, the slaughter of a maybe, maybe not partner in, in, in Genesis itself is really just designed to further this male narrative. Just, it's all about a power struggle. It's just about illustrating that. It's the the it's the uh, the um, the Old Testament equivalent of fridging. You know, are you, are you aware of that term? Yeah, yeah. 
because it, it, it's come up a lot in comic book culture, you know, and action movie culture. But that's exactly what what Dinah is in 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 the in the Old Testament, and I think it's fascinating that the author has just created this entire narrative about um, female collectivity and connectivity using that as the jumping off point. And I think to arc it back to what you were saying about um, your friend's experience and, and, and um, that, um, the, that female grouping you were thinking of in terms of rallying around her, that's very much that the way that works and the way that should work and how important that is in our society, in human society, is, is the theme in this book that really, really spoke to me. You know, again, female connectivity and collectivity. I think it's fascinating to look at the amount of time that is spent um, analysing, portraying uh, Dinah's relationships with her four mothers. Not just one mother, four mothers, and they're all with different facets of the female persona. I thought that was that was truly fascinating. There is a um, first of all, I come from a family of three sisters. And my older sister had a daughter and she's the only daughter. We've all given birth to boys since then. It's there's one girl and there's all the rest are boys. And so I now, this is the first time I've ever read this book and been like, oh my God, I am one of the aunties. Like I am, I am one of the, I am Zilpah, you know, and, and my older sister is Leah and my younger sister is Rachel and Danielle, our niece is Dina. Like I saw those dynamics of her having been raised by all three of us. And we all had a role to play that was really specific and unique to us and important to her development. Um, but there is, there was a recent study. I mean, when I say recent, like within the last 20 years that um, I thought was so incredible and and so freeing as a woman um, where they discovered that when they did the neurological um, examination or the initial studies on the human response to stress and they came up with this you know duality of its fight or flight you know this is what the human body the human DNA the human biology does it responds with hormones that create a re response in humans that is either fight or flight when they're in stress. Well, they, they revisited and reevaluated those studies and realized that those studies, because of the time that they were done and the place that they were done, which I believe was the 1960s in America, I think, don't quote me on that. Um, the test subjects were all men, yeah, all right. of them. Right. So they were like, huh, I wonder what would happen if we just put some women into the tests and see like how that impacts the results. And what they found overwhelmingly was that men do tend to have a fight or flight response, but women overwhelmingly have a completely different response. And they added, they said, there's a third response. There's a third biological, there's not two, there's three. And the third is tend and befriend. And the tend and befriend is group together, hear everybody out, sort of think it through together as a collective and then decide collectively how we will act in this moment of stress, which of course is great for the historical role that women played in human culture, right? Like if, if you're out f hunting a lion, there's no time to tend and befriend. There is not a moment, not a split second to sit. Okay. What are we going to do? The lion is coming for us. He's really angry. He's going to eat the, all of it. Like, what do we do now? There's no time for that. You have to react with a fight or flight, right? That's what a hunter must do. But if you are essentially running the tribe, which the women did, the men were gone all the time. 
You know, that was, and they were, if they were around, they were sort of, for the most part, in most tribes, they were loungers, right? Like they were just lounging around doing a lot of nothing. And women were running the show. Yeah. Then that becomes paramount. And, and really, I think if you look at the original, like, Greek parliament and the notion behind that, you know, men were really adopting that tend and befriend mentality of how do we collectively gather and then make better choices than what we would make if we were just a dictator choosing from a throne. Um, and I think that was men, you know, very wisely like leaning on the yin and, and being like, this is, there is wisdom here. There is strength here. There is beauty here. And like, we can adopt this. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. That just came yeah. to mind when you were talking about the collective thing is that that third element of the, the human nature and, and how much you see it in the book that, that we read. Um, that, it's, it's very interesting to hear, to hear you get into that. Something I, I was thinking of as you were speaking, because it touches upon, for me, some of your, that your life experiences you've talked about before, is that um, Dinah's point of view in the novel is often one of uh, an outsider, an observer within the narrative that you mm -hmm. know she is walking through. Um, yeah. Is that something that spoke? I, I feel like it, that must have been something that spoke to you and really arrest, particularly once you've explained the moment that you were in when you first experienced the book. That must have had a huge piece of you know emotional internet intellectual connectivity with you when you read it. I'm so interested. First of all, the answer is yes. And I can dive into that, but I'm so interested as to why your instincts felt that that would connect with me. I think it's because we've spent quite a bit of time talking now. And, um, and I, I think it's because quite often uh, you, you touched upon it before, which was that you, you, you actually oh, yeah. don't keep a very busy personal life. It's quite stripped down. Yeah, which is it, it's something that I completely understand myself because I because I I know lots and lots of people, but actually I, I on a one on one basis and my sister is always laughing about this. I'm I'm, I'm kind of a loner, right? So I get on with everybody. I, I flatter myself to think I get on with everybody, but I have to spend a lot of time by myself, and I will frequently go walking or drinking or eating alone. You know, it's it's yeah. uh, it, and so. I, I can always I always recognize the signs when I speak to fellow travelers who who tick that box, you know. And that is clearly you because enough of your anecdotes are set not set in the world of so I was in the pub with all my friends. <laughs> and in the middle of that happening, this is what happened. Yeah, it's yeah. almost like um well, I was I was sat in this environment by myself. Yeah. You know, I was heavily pregnant and alone, and I'm happy with that. It wasn't a problem. <laughs> and, uh, but that's one of maybe five or six anecdotes over the time. We know each other. You've told me, and it just paints that picture. And the minute I started reading this particular character, Dinah, the way that she's portrayed, I'm thinking, I was thinking, you have to have identified with her. It's probably unconsciously one of the reasons why I, I've read this book three times. It's the only book in the world that I've now read three times. I tend not to reread things once I've read them once. Um, but um, I, I love that element to the story. And I think one of the things that is most, I was, I was thinking this structure through at the end of this last read, um, because the structure is, is very specifically chosen. She's basically an omniscient voice and yet the central character, which is a really interesting line artistically to walk. And, you know, she's very deft as a writer, I think to pull it off so well. Um, 
But well, can, I I, can I just say something? So, yeah. you know, in the last two episodes where I've been absolutely trashing the writing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, th- yeah. This was the first, this is the first book that we've examined where I've thought, oh man, okay, this is actually well written. Yeah. You know, uh, it's yeah. come from a whole different place of, of technique and skill than the other books, which are um, a download of people's, yeah, you know, of what people believe in effect. This is a very different thing. I think that's one of the reasons why I, I've always wanted to be a fictional writer, because I think for me, what happens in the structure and the story and the grace of the words in the way a story can be told and a way a story can be fabricated and the way that dialogue is, is crafted and in every period and comma and semicolon and everything that goes onto that page are these whispers of truth that are you're not being intellectually beat over the head with. And so they can sort of permeate in a much more profound way where you sense what they're saying, but but you you can't necessarily put your finger on it in a way that it's so clear that now it's now it's something to be disputed, right? Now it's something to like, okay, let's break this down. Like like what we have done for both the previous books with the vision and conversations with God, it's almost like they're begging to be broken down and disassembled because they've been so carefully assembled like architecture. Whereas this is more like a windstorm. Yeah. And the winds pick up and they calm down and they, but they, they caress your skin. They sort of pass through and in you and with you. And, um, Oh God, that, that remind that like, really, like, as I said that I was like, Ooh, I'm feeling that. (laughs) And it it reminded me of when I spoke to you about Ruach, the, Hebrew word for spirit. Yeah. And, and I, I just briefly touched in one of our previous conversations on the word um, geria, which is the Hebrew word for moon, but it's a child root of ruach. They're like two completely connected words. They're only just differentiated by one tiny little symbol. Um, and it's what in Hebrew we call the child, a child root word. And to me, like that harkens again to the wisdom that used to be possessed um, I think in most cultures that that the moon and God and the sun and God and the stars and God, that these elements are totally interlinked. Like you can't separate God or spirit or life from these sources, these points of light and, and these life-giving sort of cycle-creating, life-creating points of light. Um, but yes, I, all of which, by the way, have, have, uh, to get back to the, the concept of, you know, the concept of the speaks to me of, of the grand super complex design, all of those things you just mentioned have a t- tremendous amount of symmetry to them. You know, there are patterns in, there's patterns in all of those things, yeah. you know, and, and, and uh, things that if you were a scientist completely, and if you're a scientist who's completely, de- you know, divorced from any kind of religious belief or philosophical belief, say you're a pure scientist, you'd look at all that stuff and just describe it in terms of all these amazingly complex patterns, you know, so, so I think that's, I think that's a, I think that's again another case of really everybody talking about the same thing but coming at yeah. it from different angles. Well, I've always said and and I think there are people who take great offense to it and I'm okay with that I'm used to offending people. But I've always said that that there is no such thing as a scientist who is completely divorced from religion because the science is their religion. 
It's their, it's their interpretation of God, right? It's their yeah. language to express what we can't see. Like when you talk about molecules in, in, in the middle ages, they used to talk about how you could fit a thousand angels on the tip of a needle point. And, and, and it was always seen as so ignorant, you know, like this really, like once there was this intellectual scientific revolution, there was such an ignorant perspective of like, oh my God, like that's ridiculous. But there are theorists who have said they believe that was the beginning of science. That was the beginning of people starting to understand that um, there are atoms and molecules, like these tiny unseen little things that, that, if you call them angels, what you're saying is, right, they're, they're invisible forces at work, right? And, and like, that's essentially what an angel is. Or like, you know, and to me, like the, the, the essence of God is God is truth, right? It's just truth. And like we've personified truth by putting a beard on him. <laughs> but like, it's just truth. It's truth. And like, we don't know what form that takes. We don't, we can't, we can't conceive Because of. truth was being personified by a bunch of dudes, you know. That, exactly, that, you know. exactly. And so when we say, you know, angels on, on a needle tip, or we say atoms in a Petri dish, like under a microscope, we're just speaking different languages again about the same thing. So to me, there is no such thing as a non-religious person. There is no such thing as a non-believer. We just believe through different lenses. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 that, that's, that absolutely speaks to me. Uh, and um, it's fascinating because you might have used some sentence constructions there that I wouldn't have used. Like I would use some that, that, you, that you wouldn't, but you are saying something that absolutely speaks to me. And I feel the truth of that for sure. Hard agree. Hard agree indeed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, and I guess my final word on this book was, uh, was I, I thought it was a great read. I found it to be a tremendously emotionally propulsive novel with some genuine scope because not only do you travel from Haran, which would have been Iraq, Syria, you know, through Canaan into Shechem, Israel and into Egypt, but you also uh, make the journey through Dinah's entire life. Yeah, so it's got it's got tremendous ambition. I think. I think it's. I actually think it is a major piece of work. And if you'd have asked me that a week ago, uh, I would have thought, Ah, well, what this is going to be. My, my speculation about it would have been, sight and scene was it was going to be like the secret, which, by the way, is a book that I do enjoy. Yeah, but I thought it was that which is which is basically um, uh, sort of uh, self. Um, What's the what now? We're going to get this exactly right. Yeah, it's it's kind of self-acclimating kind of claptrap, really, but designed to focus you on the fact that you know you can actually make things happen, and it touches upon what we just the the power of everything that's out there to actually yield a result in your life, which I do believe in, and that's why it speaks to me, right? But I thought that's what this was going to be, and it wasn't that at all. You know, <laughs> it's this incredibly powerful journey, you know, through a, a, a woman's life in a particular era of, of society and time that's never been recorded before and while it is a kind of speculative fiction I think it has an incredibly um, powerful sort of emotional truth to it and 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 whether things in that time really went down that way and I, I, as you right. touched upon before uh, the author certainly done a tremendous amount of research I think the point that she's making it doesn't really matter if it's not forensically clinically correct because it absolutely feels real 
I think. Like watching, you know, a 4K 3D movie in a massive surround cinema or something, and you spend all of that time inside of it. Once again, it, it's architectural, right? It's an yeah. architect. It's an architectural structure that, that is like begging for you to deconstruct it. Like it just wants that sort of discourse. It wants you to say, where are the holes in this theory? Um, whereas I don't feel like um, what has happened in, in Dina's storytelling is that you're like, where are the holes? You feel like, you know, she doesn't care if it's accurate or not. That's not the point. That the point is this this representation of something, this representation of something that cannot be explained in an architectural sense. It needs to be lived. It needs to be felt. And, and where I was originally going and then completely lost my, my way, uh, when I was talking about the structure of this book and the way it was created was that I think what really s- stood out for me um, this time around was how the story begins before she's born and this omniscient um, point of view that she's able to speak from and speaks through sort of the story of her mother's. And then it carries on after her death. And you'd think, well, the story's over now she's dead. And and also, I don't know if you felt this way, but I felt quite arrested in, in the moment when you realize, wait, she's dying. Like the, the book, the book's not over. Like how, how, yeah. how can this be happening? You know, you never hear the protagonist die. Um, and it just carried on. And it was essentially um, for me, this, this beautiful perspective on life that we are more than just this moment. That we are the accumulation of the moments before us and after us. And, and that's such a beautiful ancient way of structuring society where we honor our elders, we honor our children, we honor the past and the future generations. And we've li- we live now in a society that is so hell-bent on this exact moment, which is also beautiful, like being really truly in the present moment and not sort of fixating on the future and the past is, in my opinion, how we, how we want to carry ourselves through our days. But I don't think that means we're blinders to the past and the future and disrespect and reject the past and the future as if they don't even belong to you. I think this book does a beautiful job of being completely in the present moment with Dina through her life. I mean, she is so present, yeah. but then, but then honoring and acknowledging that she is, she is the accumulated, you know, she is the sum of her parts. She is not just Dina. She is Dina, the daughter of, and yeah. she is Dina, the grandmother of, and that those, those identities are as strong as the woman, you know, just the yeah. woman herself. I'm so curious. I'm dying to know because I kept thinking of you, of course, as I was reading it again. And there's so much intimacy in this book that I relished in. For me, it was like soul food. It's just so nourishing to read about the inner intimate lives of women because it is such an untapped um, story point, you know, there's just not a lot of story in those spaces, but I kept thinking of you and being like, I wonder if this is going to be so boring to him because this is basically just the day in day out daily grind of women. I wonder if this will be uncomfortable in any way for him. Cause it talks so much about women's periods and, and, you know, the, the, the birthing and like all these really intimate sort of visceral female experiences. And I just, as a man, I'm so interested to hear your perspective reading it on what it was like to be ushered into that world yes i i think it's it's a great question it, that that 
that element of the the that all those huge aspects of the female experience have always been something that I've been tremendously interested in as a human being. So so um, I, I was uh, I was as interactive as you can be in the process in the process of my my kids being born. I'm not trying to suggest for one second because I hear a lot of men talk about this. Well, I was there at the birth, like that meant they're actually doing anything of any real import, you know. <laughs> and, and of course they're not. You know, they're, they're, you know, if you express as a percentage who's doing the work in a birth, it's like hundred percent the woman, you know, it's the, it's not the man who's sitting there being, but I, I, was, I was as involved as you can be in the process. And um, my kids were, were born in different ways, but, but also in terms of the female experience, I mean, I, I, I'm very close to my mother and my sister. I know a lot of men who are very close to mothers and sisters, but have no connection or knowledge of the female experience whatsoever. And I'm not saying, Hey man, I'm super connected to the female experience. I wouldn't, I wouldn't presume to, say that but um when i went to when i did my english degree i went to a university college that uh this is in the early 80s that had been up until the very late 70s uh, an all-female college right and um and I, I i started there about two or three years after they broke down all those systems so you couldn't yeah so colleges had to be co-educational. You couldn't go go and do a degree in a place where you, it was just men or it was just women. But it had only changed within the two or three years prior. And as a result of that, just through at that, it's very different now and it's much bigger now. But at that point in the mid-80s, most of the students in that university college were female, like 99% of them. Oh, wow. And, and so... <laughs> So I'm so I'm I'm one of I'm one of the few men in that place, wow. and as a result, for that entire three year period, all of my friends, you know, at a time when I'd had you know more traditionally aligned friendships as a teenager in the seventies, you know, all of my friends were were were, were male. You know, all the guys I went yeah. to the cinema with were male. Wow. And but by this at this point in my life, it was a very it's a very interesting period for me. It was tremendously I found it to be it really contributed a lot to my growth as a person and um, all my friends from that period of time literally every single one of them is female and so my entire like friendship day-to-day experience the things that I'd be I'd be sat around kind of in dorm room it was me and you know 25 other people all of whom were female so the stuff that got talked about you know and, and the, I, I, I just I, I became very comfortable with and interested in that. While yeah. I, I would be at pains to say I'm not in any way trying to define that experience because there's nothing worse than hearing, for want of a better description, you know, a woke, you know, contemporary male talking about the, the female experience like they own and understand it. That always makes me just shake my head in disbelief. But I do feel, and, and I, I can't really explain this without using some words that could be awful bullshit buzzwords, but they happen to be true. You know, I've always been sort of very empathic about. I think I've, I think I've always been able uh, to connect with women very easily, and that definitely is born of that period of time in my life. I mean, it must have been inside me, but definitely what unlocked it was being in a in a place where for three years. Everybody I knew was female, and yeah. I, I, and because I don't have, I, I, I come from a family of people who who uh, love sports, for example. 
but I'm the black sheep. I'm not interested in sports. Yeah. I love the fact that they love sports and I love the camaraderie of sports. Right. But the idea of me sitting down and watching a soccer match or a rugby match or a US football match or a baseball match, apart from taking my dad to games, which I do every now and again, I would just never do that. You know, I can't watch that stuff without falling asleep. So therefore it's not even like I was in this all female environment, but every now and again, I used to nip out to the pub twice a week and watch the football gaming and get a fix of my, you know, male camaraderie. I had zero male camaraderie for a three-year period. So I think that just gave me this grounding and fascination with uh, the female experience in life. You know, so that's how it – so I was very comfortable reading about that. And I think that's why I, I was so excited about it when I was talking to you earlier on. I think the reason I got so, man, I found this very, you know, supremely propulsive and it really spoke to me on an emotional level. I think it was for those reasons, probably. I'm telling you, you and I are like the mirror image of one another. Like we are like the two sides of a diff, of a coin. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, we yeah, yeah. Are in the in that so much of what we've experienced is so similar, just like the flip, like the flip of it. And I and I was um I found myself in through high school and college also just being always with guys. Always. Yeah. I was always the one token female in a group of guys. And I just spent so much of my late teen and early adult years in that space. And it just continued on when I started my acting career. I mean, working on Lost, I was always working with men. I think the first time I started to feel like, oh, I get to actually work with one of my female co-stars on a semi-regular basis was when Elizabeth Mitchell entered the show as um, Julianne. Yeah. And then her and I would cross paths a little more than I had with the other women. Yeah. Um, I had like a split second in season one where Yunjin Kim and I got to spend some time working together. And that was just heaven. Yeah. But, you know, both of those women that for me, that was like, oh, this is amazing. But mostly I spent all my time working with men. Yeah. And of course, a film set is this crazy testosterone filled, you know, sausage fest. It's just dudes everywhere. Of course. They're- new women on a film crew and then moving on to the hobbit i was again i was i I literally didn't have a single scene with another woman yeah and so moving into the marvel universe was uh uh, again a bunch of dudes and yeah yeah of course (laughs) one you know and it's just like carrie and then finally ant-man and the wasp was the first time when they brought michelle where I, i actually had a little bit more interaction with um and even cassie the little girl i guess yeah her but I have I've spent the bulk of my adult life um, surrounded by men and and to a certain degree, just like you like you described, organically sort of adopting and feeling very comfortable in their spaces, very much being able to like keep up with the banter and the crudeness and the sort of irreverence and like yeah. play that game. Right. Like like riff with that space. Um, and then I think on another level, and I don't know if you felt any of but I also had um, like this, there was a certain amount of it being forced. There was a certain amount of being empathic and just, I had an understanding and I felt a natural rapport. And then there was another side of it that was like, if you can't hang with the dudes, you're not cool. Right. Like that in a patriarchal society has historically been the case. Like the one woman who gets who is lucky enough to get to hang out with the guys is like, cause she's the coolest girl in the group. And that bullshit has created 
you know, such a rift in women um, between each other and then between themselves as well. And I, I, maybe I'm wrong, but I imagine that you maybe didn't feel that. You, you, as- you imagine that completely correctly. Yeah, that's right. Because it, it serves the, the uh, patriarchy's purpose to sow that kind of dissension. We're going to pick you out and you're right. going to be one of us. And that, that dissension uh, among among women that's fostered by a lot of that male bullshit, that works. To, that helps the patriarchy, right, in its traditional sense. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to say another word because I'm aware that it's... Yeah, the clock. No, we've done it again. The clock is ticking. So that's a, but again, that that's a, that was a very interesting uh, closing digression, which did, did absolutely connect to the core of what we were discussing with the yeah. red tent by oh, yeah. Anita Diamant or Anita Damon, whichever, whichever Anita she is. I think, uh, I think this is a, for me, this has been far and away as a, as a, as a book in and of itself, as a piece of art. I think this has been the most successful reading experience. I, I think it's a, a genuinely accomplished novel. So well, I, I really apologize enjoy in advance then, Andrew, because we're going back to male authors for the next two <laughs> <laughs> So we're getting yeah. right back into the architectural sense. <laughs> you have to bear with me and just strap in for the ride. This was your like, this is your oasis in the desert and it's yeah. over. It's perfectly landed right in the middle as well, as every oasis should do. So we, we we fed the camels, we've watered the camels, we've yeah. we've we've cooked some food over an open fire, we've slept under the stars. Yeah. And next week, for those of you listening and want to check this book out, we will be moving away from the oasis, climbing the dunes once more, yes. and embracing the presence process by Michael Brown. The presence process by Michael Brown. Strap in. It's a good one. And and what would be your one or two line pricey of what this book is going to be? Oh gosh. So actually, that's. Actually I know quite- I'm asking you, a super verbose person, to say so to come up with that in one or two lines. But I'm. Yeah, yeah. this will be my challenge to yeah. do it very quickly. Well, um, basically, in the journey that I'd taken so far through the vision, the conversations with God, and the red tent my heart and mind had been open to a broader sense of spirituality than I had been raised within the church. And now the the struggle became, how do I apply that? There's no church that teaches this. There's no Sunday school to go to. There's no preacher at the pulpit every Sunday to say, okay, this new path you're on, this is how you do it. And I, um, and I needed guidance and I, and I wanted practical applications for a broader spiritual perspective. And that became the presence process. And the presence process is literally, as the name suggests, a process. So there is, it's kind of a how-to. And um, and it's it's very, very intense. So if you plan on reading it, I'm not sure if you plan on doing it, but I would say try it. And because I've done it four times now. And every time I've had a completely different experience, but none of them have been uneventful. They have all been intense and incredible and um, have essentially given me a practice that I've now carried on for six years. Wow. Okay. Well, on that bombshell, I'm, that's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm gonna, oh. I'm gonna, I'm gonna check it out tonight. I'm gonna start doing it, and let let's see what kind of physical shape I'm in by the time we meet again <laughs> in a week's time. <laughs> I can't wait. It's all getting very juicy now. I love it. I love it. That's brilliant. So, brains, this has been 
Pardigree presents Evangelina Lee's Library of the Soul. We've been talking about Magnificent Red Tent this week. And we're going to be back in a week's time for the presence process. And let's hope I'm the same in a week's time. Let's hope you're not. Or, or maybe I've been changed now in a glorious and magnificent way. <laughs> oh, it's been great as always, Andrew. Great to see you, pal. You take care of yourself. I'll see you soon. Bye now. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Hard Agree. This episode was edited by John Horsley and Kenrick Regan, and our theme music, Golden, was written and performed for this show by Liverpool's finest band, Denio. Hard Agree is a production of The Spoilerverse and myself, Andrew Sumner.